Just a quick message before the episode gets underway. The Aurora Renewables Summit London is returning on the afternoon of Wednesday the 26th of June. Book your ticket now to hear from leading experts in the energy industry as they assess the opportunities and challenges within the UK and the wider European renewable sector. You will also benefit from unparalleled networking opportunities. We look forward to seeing you there. I think that was one of the big outcomes we thought COP could produce, actually. I mean, with sort of three things in mind, you know, how do you accelerate momentum and commitment and align these major economies? How can you sort of articulate meaningfully these significant shifts in how we'll sort of utilise energy and the infrastructure that supports it? And then third one was cementing these collaborations globally. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Dan Monzani, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at Aurora. My guest today began her career trading power and gas for Centrica, and then between 2014 and 2017, when she and I first got to know each other, she was the director for the UK system operator, responsible for keeping the lights on day in and day out, as well as helping design the legal separation of the system operator from the rest of National Grid, which owns transmission networks. Before returning to the UK earlier this year, she was chief operating officer for National Grid's US gas business. She's now president of National Grid Ventures, the competitive arm of National Grid, which invests in, owns and operates electrical interconnection, LNG terminals, carbon capture projects, and a variety of other assets that help to integrate the system. My guest today is Cordy O'Hara. Welcome to Energy Unplugged, Cordy. It's great to be here, Dan, and I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you. Excellent. Let's start with um, uh, with National Grid Ventures then. I'd like to understand how your business fits within the wider National Grid Group. I, I suspect many of our listeners will be very familiar with National Grid, which uh, invests in the UK and the US, but largely makes its returns through regulated network assets. Whereas National Grid Ventures, I think, is something quite different, isn't it? It's much more um, about competitive merchant markets. Um, so what is, it, what is it that defines which parts of the energy transition you choose to invest in uh, as National Grid Ventures? Yeah, great question. And um as you, as you sort of laid out in the introduction, we are we are um, a separate division of National Grid, and we are focused on investing in clean energy transition assets, um, and with the aim to really help facilitate the delivery of net zero. And that acknowledges quite rightly that whilst networks have a very large role to play in that, there are also other other technologies um, and areas of expertise that will need to be delivered. And so we look at it quite simply in terms of the opportunities that are adjacent to our key markets that we operate in or where we have um, a customer base, uh, where we can bring to bear our understanding of market development, business model development, and where we can also bring to bear our engineering competence. That said, we also recognize that uh, we won't have all of the components necessarily. And so we're very much a partner model. So we like to create a compelling offering to deliver net zero in some of these more competed technologies by combining capabilities with key partners. And I I think we're going to talk a bit more about electricity interconnectors today, but I think that is a 
fantastic example of, you know, we believe interconnection will be needed to help deliver net zero. Um, those interconnectors connect into our home markets um, and into uh, with our European neighbours. Uh, the subsea cabling brings to bear, you know, our engineering competence and the European TSOs we work with are phenomenal partners who we can share um, the work with to develop, you know, the, the current point-to-point interconnectors and, and future designs as well. Great. Yeah. Okay. That's that's that that that's really clear. Um, and interesting, you raised the point about that the engineering expertise that you obviously have within the group more widely. Does that sort of define where you choose to go as well? Sort of, you know, a capital-intensive assets with a serious kind of mechanical engineering and electrical engineering aspect to it, or or do you look at some of the sort of digital integration assets that are sort of really increasingly important across the the system? Are there any sort of boundaries to where you you might go, um, or, uh, or or is or is it really sort of any of those adjacent sort of energy transition assets that you think about investing in? Yeah, I mean, we we want to have a disciplined approach, and um, we are you know we are at our heart a long term infrastructure business. We're an owner and an operator of those assets, and so um, a lot of our decision choices will be around the sort of very nature of the business, but then maybe in technologies that aren't regulated but have the similar characteristics. Um, we do know though that the clean energy transition will require a level of digitization of yeah. the ways in which we work, how our infrastructure interacts with broader energy systems and how that sort of enables um, um, a more distributed energy system where you know consumers are playing a part in, in balancing those systems and they're making choices as prosumers, producers and consumers um, in this sort of uh, green integrated uh, world that we see ahead of us. So digital and having a digital mindset and approach is is part of National Grid's approach as we look forward, whether that's in our core regulated or in some of these technologies. But but just being a, pl- a pure digital play, probably less likely, but it's absolutely complementary to, to the infrastructure and the way we see systems and networks operating in the future. Brilliant. Let's, um, let's dive into uh, some of the things you talked about there. So in particular, uh, we're going to talk today about the North Sea, and you've just completed uh, a really major project to commission uh, North Sea Link, which is the longest subsea interconnector in the world, I understand. Uh, yes. O- over 700 kilometres uh, long? 720 uh, from... kilometres, yes. Oh, sorry, don't want to miss out those last 20. They're probably the really critical, <laughs> <laughs> critical ones. Um, and that runs from Blythe in the northeast of England all the way to... Um, to uh, Norway's major uh, hydropower resources. I mean, that must be one hell of an engineering challenge. What were some of the problems your team had to tackle in building something over that kind of range and those kind of uh, topologies? Yeah, so, you know, I think just to start off, we're we're immensely proud of of this interconnector and it has been an absolutely phenomenal partnership with Statnet, the TSO in Norway. And it is much longer than anything we've ever built before. Um, and it's much in, in much deeper waters as well. And the project took six years to build, um, more than 4 million working hours uh, with almost 6,000 working days at sea. Um, and just if, if you were to sort of have a visual of this and look it on a map, there we had to d- navigate much more sort of difficult terrain in Norway. We had to actually 
tunnel through a mountain. <laughs> we had to build a special sort of cable laying barge to take it across uh, lakes and, and fjords. Um, so we really had to be quite resourceful and, and really um, work together as a team to just navigate a very different terrain from, uh, from what we've you know, traditionally navigated. Um, and, and really, um, it's all there. The skills and the capabilities were there. Uh, it, the partnership brought them to bear. Um, and hence, we're just so, um, we're so proud of what we've uh, managed to achieve on this one. Do you think interconnectors can just keep getting ever longer? I think, I think you've got a project, Denmark Viking Link, which is even slightly longer than the Norwegian yes. project you've just finished. But, but there must be, I mean, is there, is there a natural limit to this? I mean, do, do the losses increase once you get above a, I don't know, what's the limit, a thousand kilometres? How, how much longer could they keep, keep um, yeah. guessing? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I couldn't give you a fully definitive an- answer, but what I could say is, you know, that there are longer uh, links proposed, the X links to Morocco, there's one yeah. proposed to connect Singapore and Australia. I think what we do know is HVDC technology is is getting better. So you could argue it is technically feasible. Um, but I think we shouldn't sort of just focus on the sort of who can be the biggest or the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, although that, you know, it, from an engineering challenge standpoint, that that's fascinating. But our, our focus has been on um, developing projects that deliver the most benefits to consumers. You know, and, and and our focus has been UK and Europe, and and and, ma- and that makes sort of commercial sense. Um, what where I see the sort of future of these links, there may there may be some longer, as we've discussed, but uh, we're going to have to think about how they help facilitate the offshore wind agenda, and actually maybe the technical challenge and opportunity is is what we're calling um, hybrid projects or multi-purpose interconnectors. Um, so that it's not just the sort of the, the length, um, but also the facility and what it does. Um, but as a sort of macro view from National Grid more generally on, on grids, I think we're seeing that connecting regions across the globe is, is, is a very positive ambition and seeks to sort of share resources and resiliency. So I, I do think you'll see, yeah. you know, longer links. I think you'll see sort of slightly different designs of links. And, and I think you'll see that onshore connecting even maybe larger regions as we all sort of seek to share and optimize the surpluses of uh, renewable generation and, and, and manage the resiliency and the intermittency as well um, which those I mean, new technologies bring example. to bear no yeah. it's a great example of that isn't it because of the, the complementarity between wind and hydropower um, yes so an obvious link there um I mean, I suppose on some of the other ones, one of the challenges uh, which you'll be very familiar with as a former system operator is interconnectors can flow in both directions, can't they? So, yes. um, you know, when margins are tight, the question gets raised, well, can you really rely on interconnectors for energy security? Or, you know, when it's when there's not enough power and push comes to shove, will, will politics intervene to stop electricity flowing into the country across some of those interconnectors? I mean, what I'd say to that is we've we've seen phenomenal benefit from the, the the current portfolio of interconnectors, and we've seen those interconnectors operate very efficiently to where the markets need the power. Um, uh, you know, where, where power sc- scarcity exists, those interconnectors efficiently do flow into those higher priced markets to reflect that scarcity. And um, and actually, as I look forward, and you know, analysis has said we're. Uh, you know, by the time I finish Viking, we'll be at eight gigawatts actually in the next, 
you know, in the next time period, you'll you'll need, you know, potentially up to 18 gigawatts of interconnection. And actually, I'd argue that, you know, in terms of system security, you need more interconnector capacity, not less. And, and I say that because um, we are going to be maximising the amazing resource base, which is the North Sea, uh, which is, you know, really a green powerhouse and so many offshore renewable um, megawatts will be deployed and they are the interconnectors are I think going to be the perfect tool to both connect um, those assets efficiently but then actually to manage the intermittency because interconnectors can quickly react to changes in supply and demand they can then therefore effectively share resources um, where they're most needed Um, and so you know I think we've been seeing Recently, you know, they're, they're a good tool to support security supply um, for us and our neighbours. And I'll just give you the um, example, sort of one of our links, Nemo, you know, that's been critical in bolstering Belgian security supply when they, you know, when they had nuclear outages in 2019. Um, and, and similarly, we've often exported to France during their winter as well. I mean, the politics are sort of what they are. But I'm actually optimistic because I think we've we've got a substantial portfolio now that we can understand the benefits um, and yeah, we can yeah. see the interaction with the the wind agenda as we look forward. Yeah, it's a really important point, isn't it? I mean, I can remember looking at I mean, Rawls and the feather to work, um, looking at interconnectors and, and, and their benefits, but actually looking at the granularity of the, the French tea time peak being, I think it's half an hour or an hour, depending on the time mm. of year before the UK peak because of where the demand is and uh, um, and what latitude that's at. And watching interconnectors literally swing half out to half out to support one peak and then the other. I think so. that's yes. a really fascinating case study and that's um, that security supply you're just talking about. Agreed. Should we turn to the um, North Sea um, uh, and, and the future of how you connect up both further interconnection but also um, all that wind that uh, we're going to need? The government's committed to... 40 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030, much of it's um, off East Anglia in the North Sea. And, and it's quite possible that, you know, that could double again around the country in the 20 years there afterwards. Um, so you, you've already alluded to it. I know you're thinking mm. about how you can be involved in building out um, hybrid assets, offshore transmission grid. Yes. What, are the, what are the technical barriers to doing that? Yeah, so, I mean... We've been having quite a bit of debate about this at COP, really, because I think technically it, it's largely feasible. <laughs> um, and, you know, actually the UK and Europe is a leader in this space. And we've built an enormous amount of expertise already working in the North Sea environment uh, with, with suppliers and partners, you know, so the, 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 um, the full sort of value chain. Um, so for me, I, I, I'm not convinced it's, it's necessarily technical barriers but the the challenge of agreeing the frameworks that ensure the infrastructure we need gets built in the tight timescales and it's a phenomenal shift in in pace and tempo to meet uh, meet the new targets and then i think the other challenge is onshore there'll be significant onshore infrastructure needed and how are we going to find better ways to coordinate all of the infrastructure that's needed and bring the coastal communities with us. Um, that I think is an absolutely essential point. Can we create a, a more coordinated uh, way of delivering quickly 
that actually um, brings about the benefits of green electricity um, and reducing the uh, impact on the coastal communities who are seeing a lot of landing points and infrastructure requirements right now. Yeah, I think that's something MPs get in their post bags. Um, it's something I think we hear from wind developers, actually, because it bubbles up into local planning decisions and there's a risk that the, yeah. the system slows rather than enables that that build out of, uh, of wind. Um, so Ofgem and the government have started to look at this through the offshore transmission network review. Yeah. I guess there's a balance between what you can do longer term and what you can do shorter term. Is there how much of, are you able to work bilaterally with developers to try and coordinate the build out of, of of grids? Or frankly, is that just too much to ask um between market actors? And do you think that therefore there's a sort of systematic regulatory reform that's a uh yeah. a, a prior requirement? I mean I mean, sort of reality, we're, we're, we're going to have to have all parties working together, government regulators, transmission system operators, developers, communities. Um, we, you know, to be successful, we'll, we'll need to do things differently. So that does point to a level of, you know, systemic change. Um, and actually, you know, we've sort of been very welcoming of the Bayes Offshore Transmission Network review that you mentioned. And I think it's helpful in taking um you know things forward we've got to recognize the importance of cross-border infrastructure um you know i know the otnr is primarily focused on uk wind connection but we will we will need to we will need routes to share that wind generation with other countries um we'll need to maintain a level of regulatory flexibility to your point about early opportunities and Mm. um you know how can we create an environment where we design design for the future and what level of systemic change is needed there? But what can we practically do in, the, in this sort of what I call the, the sort of critical next decade? Um, and I think there is a, a level of um, pathfinder deals that will help, ha- you know, help sort of pick up pace um, and and maybe can be done without needing all of the sort of systemic change. Um, and it will inform it actually inform new markets and new regulatory arrangements. And I can see, you know, direction of travel and more central planning. Um, but we, um, we we need to create some momentum in the short term as well. So what can we do sort of bilaterally and push things forward using and tweaking existing frameworks if we're willing to accept some of these pathfinder projects? And then how can we use practical understanding and learning um, to inform, you know, the long term regime and the systemic change needed? I'd like to see both, I think. Yeah, and how much of that can be done um, as a UK initiative? I mean, I'm thinking some of your um, some of the more ambitious things I've seen on uh, North Sea grids have involved. I mean, we touched on hybrid interconnectors, so yeah. um, that's that's um, interconnected or transmission cabling that links up wind farms and then carries on to another market so that you can either operate as a, an interconnector or or, or or as a transmission connection for the for the wind. I've even seen yeah. plans for a, an artificial island built um, with hydrogen electrolyzers on it. Um, yes, yes. Uh, so, let me just push you on the point about pathfinders versus central planning. Do you think you can capture the full benefits of of that space um, incrementally with pathfinders, or if you're really aiming at such a grand a really grand plan with you know a, a fully integrated grid? plus artificial islands building uh, with electrolyzers on them. Does that need to be fully centrally planned out? I mean, I, I, I'm just testing your point a bit about it. 
how much can pathfinders lead the way or will we regret having done certain things before if we haven't if we do them before we have a central plan yeah it's a great question i think it's the big conundrum isn't it that we're all trying to work through I mean, how we're seeing it at National Grid is, you know, this is going to likely happen in phases and trying to sort of break the problem down a little bit. And I really think we've been actually in the phase one of building out a North Sea grid, which is, you know, point to point interconnection. Um, and we've we've proven we can we can do that successfully. And we've proven the sort of benefits of, of doing that Um Now I'm see, seeing we're in the sort of phase two, which which is this concept of hybrid projects and actually this first step in creating coordinated offshore infrastructure um, and accelerating offshore wind um, and maximizing the use of that available generation and creating a deeper relationship with EU partners in the in the way that we arrange and understand their operation. And then I think the third phase is this concept of energy islands which are artificial platforms arguably developed in the north sea which as you rightly say can be both the technologies we have today like offshore wind and then um hydrogen electrolyzers and actually the energy island itself can manage the surplus um, um by by converting to hydrogen storing um so that that would become arguably um uh, more efficient and resilient and then you've got this final sort of meshed offshored grid with with bidding zones i i worry that if we if you know if you think about phase one two and three if we if we try to get to three is it going to take us um, three years or more to sort of work it all out and um yeah. then there may be you know least regret in doing some pathfinders but i think we'll learn more than we'll regret and um i i do believe that you've got to sort of break break the challenge down and actually, the more that we do the pathfinders, the more collaboration and working together, I think, I think will accelerate the third phase. That, that is my fundamental belief. Yeah. And, and you talked there about international cooperation with the, obviously, with, you've got a lot of experience working with um, your counterparts in other countries, yes. often yeah. through JVs and obviously through other countries. You, you've also been in Glasgow, I think, for, for COP over the last couple of weeks, um, helping That's to lead right. on the Green Grid Initiative. Um, yes. What what are the opportunities for wider global cooperation on on grids then? Oh, I mean, I think that was one of the um, really one of the big outcomes we thought COP could produce. Actually, I mean, we, we, we with sort of three things in mind. You know, how do you accelerate momentum and commitment and li- align these major economies? How can you sort of um, uh, articulate meaningfully these significant shifts in how we'll sort of utilize energy and the infrastructure that supports it, and then third one was cementing these collaborations globally and so you know just a moment on the, the green grids initiative then so that's the uk and indian governments announcing this green grid initiative that national grid are actually supporting and it's looking how you can accelerate um solar deployment more widely but then delivering a more connected um uh, grid to those resources so that clean energy can be shared across multiple regions and i think that's just a perfect example of you know, there's many countries trying to say, solve the same problem. Um, and actually these these sort of efforts can help the knowledge sharing and actually can probably help emerging economies accelerate the transition. Um, so I think there's a very meaningful um, intent from COP that has been global collaboration, learning from each other, 
um, and acknowledging certain economies are in different phases of the um, evolution. And if, 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 if we can help accelerate those who are a little bit further behind and, and also learn something to keep us moving forward, that's just got to be a great thing. I want to turn back to the North Sea now, um, having yes. explored grids um, globally. Um, you, you were involved in the consortium uh, in the Humber for CCUS, yes, um, which, which is now uh, being approved as one of the early, um, the early sites, one of the early clusters. That's um, right. When, when does that go operational? Is it? Are you expecting that in the next? It's quite soon, isn't it? So yeah. So we were. So so the East Coast cluster. Um, uh, which is um, in Humber and Teesside um, mm-hmm. and was selected as one of the first two industrial clusters by the government most recently. Um, and yes, it's it's looking to deploy carbon capture, use and storage, which is the, the, the um, you know, the transport and storage infrastructure by the mid 2020s. So it's like, um, like a very ambitious timetable. Um, ambitious. Um, We've got some great partners uh, that we're working with um, and we're, we're sort of just working through the process at the moment yeah and, and you've delivered some amazing engineering successes um, in all sorts of parts of the value chain but I mean to, to I asked you the sort of the kind of skeptical question that people have about interconnectors I suppose the skeptical question people have about CCUS is how you know it hasn't been done widely worldwide mm-hmm. um, how confident can we be that those stores will keep the carbon dioxide secure um in perpetuity yeah i mean it's a really important question we've got to assure ourselves of as we as we move into you know these new infrastructure uh, needs and requirements so our partners in 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 the project are are, are bp and equinor equinor sorry total um, um and shell and so uh when we've looked at coming together for this east coast cluster the storage sites, you know, have to be very carefully chosen and licensing is dependent on com- a comprehensive assessment, really, of leakage risk. Um, and there would be, for the, you know, the storage site selected, rigorous and ongoing monitoring, you know, veric- verification procedures in place to monitor and understand the behaviour of the CO2. So CO2 sites, I don't know, I'm sure your listeners know, but they, they are sort of depleted oil and gas fields. They are well understood and they have been used to store gas and therefore CO2 naturally. So, you know, we've got to um, take these questions of safety um, and storage very, very seriously. Um, that's why I'm, you know, the expertise that's going to be brought to bear through our, our consortium is really important. And, you know, in that context, you know, we've seen successful CO2 storage operations carried out in Norway for more than 20 years. And they're permanently storing a million tons of CO2 every year deep under the Norwegian North Sea. So for me, it really important question to answer. You'll, you will have to have the right expertise and protocols in place. And that's why, you know, the, the partners and, and, and the credibility they bring to our cluster is really important. I think you're developing um, some hydrogen projects alongside that, uh, perhaps also elsewhere in the world. Um, I think blue hydrogen initially. Where do you see as the most attractive business environment for investing in hydrogen at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, we think hydrogen is going to play a really important role um, at blue and green. Um, blue is an important bridge. Um and ensures that we've got a level of secure and affordable energy in the UK and the US. Um, 
in the in the northeast of the US, we think hydrogen's got the potential to decarbonize multiple sectors, actually, industry, power generation, transportation, and heating. And we're also seeing hydrogen as a really important form of storage in the future, because actually it can be stored for days, weeks, or even months and can play a critical role in providing long duration and seasonal storage, which means we'll, we'll maintain reliability and resiliency throughout the year. Um, and that, that's going to be really important for New York State, for example, where we operate, because it's going to continue to add more and more renewables to its grid. Um, and it will require a form of um, management of intermittency and optimization of the surpluses that will come with that. Um, so yeah, we are we are very, we are positive about the role of hydrogen. Um, where we where we have um, a substantial footprint in the US, we're really exploring um, the sectors it will be used for, um, and uh, and also defining um, better the role it will play for storage purposes. It's really interesting to hear you describe the the features that might make hydrogen valuable in in the northeast of the us it, it certainly resonates with some of the work we've done in aurora around our new hydrogen product and the market attractiveness index that we we regularly update i mean focused in europe looking at um the, the main markets there but it, it is those features of the industries that uh might be customers for uh for hydrogen as well as the the right regulatory incentives and uh, and regimes that um, make those markets i mean particularly germany netherlands uk uh, attractive for, for early movers um, yeah. but um, I, w- I wanted to dig in a bit more actually in, in the couple of minutes we've got left to your experiences in the US because obviously you were you were out there for three years um, as CEO of the of the gas the uh, national grid gas business out there and um, I think the UK often keeps quite a close eye on US politics it's been really interesting watching how the um, bipartisan infrastructure bill has made its way through con- Congress and, and has now been passed but you know, there are still challenges with other parts of climate legislation over there. I mean, is this one where we should be depressed, half glass, half empty, that climate is still a very divisive issue, at least federally? Or are you optimistic that le- major legislation like that infrastructure bill is is um, is going to allow the US to make sustained investments in climate change uh, measures? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go positive on this one, <laughs> you know. Actually, Dan, because I just thought, um, you know, the the Biden administration has set some overarching goals now that um, I, I I think are very significant as as we look forward, and they've mobilised a whole of government effort really to reduce climate pollution in in every sector of the economy and increase resilience to climate impacts as part of that. And there's a huge focus on job creation, uh, especially union jobs, and improving infrastructure, and actually delivering an an equitable clean energy future um, as we progress towards net zero. So, you know, there's been very specific commitments from the administration on on offshore wind, on solar, uh, and now, you know, now that's playing throughout in in, in the legislation. And, uh, you know, the latest legislation that, that was passed includes $73 billion for power infrastructure. And that's actually the single largest investment in clean energy transmission in American history. So, um, and that includes the Bipartisan Energy Infrastructure Act, which is funding for critical minerals, critical energy technologies like carbon capture, hydrogen, 
and energy efficiency. So, you know, there's always more to be done, isn't there? But actually, in terms of the momentum that's being created through the goals the administration has set, and then now seeing some of the funding come to bear, um, that that that's what we can, you know, we can work with that. And um, uh, progress over perfection. There's a lot more to go, but I'm yeah, going yeah. to choose to be optimistic. Yeah, and when you're measuring progress in tens of billions, I, I guess that's that's got to be the right the right answer, hasn't it? I mean, do you think we also on this side of the Atlantic sometimes overstate the importance of federal um, versus uh, state action in the US? I mean, what what I saw was, um, you know, we have a we we have a very engaged you know, state system and the governors of each state um, can be incredibly progressive and set their own goals, um, you know, like New York CLCPA, which has really laid out very specific goals and targets for New York State, including incenting specific technologies to be delivered um, by certain time periods because they know offshore wind's coming, therefore they need a certain amount of um, energy storage, battery storage, and so you know, I, I my experience has been that it's really it's really helpful to have this federal umbrella and additional sort of funding and commitment and increasing innovation at that level. But we have tremendous in the states that we serve, we have seen a tremendous leadership on the clean energy transition from state governors. And that has then fed into regulatory frameworks and, you know, updated those frameworks to incentivize clean energy infrastructure to be built. So I think it takes both. And actually some of the state positions are very progressive and um, should be celebrated. That's brilliant. And always good to end on a, on an upbeat note. Um, uh, Cordy, thank you. That's been a fascinating discussion. We you know covered the, the North Sea, worldwide grids, um, American politics, um, really, really helpful insights on the global energy transition. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, Dan, and I'm sure I will see you soon. That was Dan Monzani, Managing Director of UK and Ireland at Aurora, talking to Cordy O'Hara, President of National Grid Ventures. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.